You're listening to Perks of Being a Book Lover, a show about books, people who read, and how reading at its very best is a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. There is the old philosophical question. If a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Likewise, if you read a book and don't discuss it, have you enjoyed all the perks of being a book lover? I'm your host, Amy. I've been a member of numerous book clubs over the last 25 years and started quite a few. I love asking people what they're reading so that they'll ask me the same. I'm a vintage bookseller, a traveler wannabe, and a fanatic about dogs. And I'm your host, Carrie. I'm an English teacher, a freelance writer, a blogger, and the person whose Instagram feed features more photos of my cats than my kids. Each week, we will talk with a guest who shares the love of reading, how they impart that passion, and what books really catch them on fire. We will also tell you about our literary lives, what books are on our nightstands, and other bookish fun. Welcome. Listeners, we hope you're enjoying our show. If you like what we do, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a minute, but it's incredibly important to help other listeners find us. And if you'd like to see additional photos and other fun stuff about our guests and show topics, check out our Facebook page or show notes at our website. Thanks. Tony Dingman is an actor, historical educator, playwright, and creator of the Fraser History Museum's annual event, An Evening with Poe, which is a celebration of everything dark and macabre about this great American author. For 10 years, he and the other actors at the Fraser have been adapting and creatively performing such classics as The Raven, The Bells, and The Telltale Heart, but they also include the lesser-known works of Edgar Allan Poe each Halloween season. Tony tells us how long it takes to research and write scripts for the historical figures he plays, which Poe story literally made a school student scream, and why it's okay to fail at something before you actually succeed, regardless of whether you were Edgar Allan Poe or someone not famous at all. We today are at the Fraser History Museum with Tony Dingman, who is a teaching artist, but he's also what we might call a renaissance man. So, uh, Tony, welcome. Hey, hi everybody. How's it going? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to work at the Fraser and all that you do here. Well, when I first started here, I did not intend for it to be full-time. I'm an actor, first and foremost, so there was an audition for historic interpreter, which I didn't know what that meant, actually. I just said, there's an audition, I'll go do it. (laughs) And I knew one of the people who worked here, Barrett Cooper at the time, and he was the head of interpretations. This is before the museum opened. And so I auditioned, he liked me, so so did BJ, and then I was hired. Now, what that meant was we got scripts that had been produced or written by people across the the pond over in in England, because when we started, we were the Royal Armories USA and Fraser Museum, or Fraser Historical Arms Museum slash Royal Armories USA. So we were using old scripts, scripts that they'd written a long time ago. So I just had to memorize and go. And then at some point, I asked BJ, it would be nice if I could be full-time doing this. And so I think I was the first full-time actor besides Barrett Cooper here. But it was all came from an audition. I didn't expect. In fact, interestingly enough, I didn't like history at all. <laughs> I didn't until this job, really. And I think it's because of the job itself that I like history because we've all read the history books that are... Right, you dry. Know, yeah, here's where the army was. Here's how many people were there. This many people died. Dry, yeah. So in doing this job, what I do is I create scripts about people using their words 
so I get to know those people really well. And then that makes it more personal to me. So history is much more personal than it used to be. It's also far more gray. Yeah. When I first got here, it was like, you know, this is the good guy, that's the bad guy. We won, they lose. And it is never that way. What are some of the figures that you have written scripts for? Uh, let's see. The first one, I think the first one I wrote was Colonel Robert Gould Shaw. And if you're not familiar with him, he was the white officer in charge of the 54th. Massachusetts Regiment, that's the first volunteer black regiment. Oh, wow. Have you ever seen the movie Glory? Yes. Mm -hmm. With Matthew mm -hmm. Broderick? Matthew mm -hmm. Broderick is, is Robert Gouldshaw. Okay. okay. So I had to read, oh gosh, I don't know, hundreds of his letters. Wow. And in doing that, I picked out the pieces that I felt like made the best compelling story. And it's interesting because in movies, we have a tendency to make that right and wrong. This is a good guy or a bad guy. And you don't get all of the nuance as to what you know, people are people. Mm -hmm. We've all got our own, you know, problems and mistakes. And so I learned, I thought a lot about him. That's where I learned that it, it was one thing back in the day to talk about freedom for people. But it was a huge step and one most people hadn't taken to go freedom from there to equality. Mm -hmm. And so reading his letters, it was fascinating to me just to see how he, no, he hadn't made that step at all. Hmm. He believed certainly that people should be free, but. And so knowing that, having done the research, I, I kind of got a feeling for the man himself, I think. I hope I do him justice, but that's, that was the one, that was my first. Well, I, I was gonna ask you, how much time do you spend? So when you have a, a certain person that you want to investigate, read about, how much time do you take and how much reading do you do in order to help you prepare that script? It depends on how much is available. I like to go as much as possible from primary source because mm -hmm. I don't want to put words in someone's mouth. Mm -hmm. So Gould Shaw probably took me, I would say, between four and five months of research before I ever started writing. Oh, wow. Because I had to read the letters and I had to organize the letters. I had to, you know, research what he wears, when he wore it, what, he, you know, what all of that means, all the insignia. So probably four or five months just to research, another month and a half to write, and then I had to rehearse. And it's interesting, you don't think about it, but there's so many steps involved, but you have to, somewhere early in the process, you have to decide what you're going to wear. Mm -hmm. Because it takes a while sometimes to get. If it's not off the shelf and it's made specifically for you, for some reason, the people who are out there making it, historic clothing, they have a different time scale than the rest of us. <laughs> so it takes a long time. Yeah. But. So where do you get the idea to select these people? I mean, does it depend on whether an exhibit is coming? Yeah. It used to be a little bit more free. We had more autonomy in our selections of characters. Whatever was interesting, and we could directly point to something in the galleries and say, look, this is like the rifle, or this is like the whatever that this guy had. We could do it. Mm -hmm. But we've kind of streamlined and it's far more efficient now to say okay we know that we're going to be doing this exhibit coming up so for instance uh, music in Kentucky can we get something very specifically that speaks to that because one of our goals is to bring schools in mm -hmm. and so you have to have curriculum plus often performances the neat thing about performing for schools is that in most museums, you're going to see wall panels, you're going to see things behind glass. Maybe there's a button to push, but you don't get to talk mm -hmm. with someone who has, you know, at least at, in that subject, has a pretty good knowledge of it. And I say that because there are huge 
holes in my historic knowledge. <laughs> I won't even tell you what they are, but they're huge. And I fill them in little by little. As I do another character, I go, okay, Civil War, I need to learn about this. And so you have to learn, it's an actor thing. You have to learn all your given circumstances. And I have brought students to the Fraser, and a lot of times, I mean, the questions they ask, I would imagine, maybe make you have to do additional research to go, oh, well, I don't know the answer, so maybe I'll look into that. That does often happen. I think the hardest thing for me to learn was to be able to say just what you said. Mm. I don't know the answer. Because often I feel like teachers have this sense that they need to be teachers mm. and they need to know things. But I've learned slowly but surely that a teacher is not that. A teacher is a guide mm -hmm. more than they are know-it-alls. They are a way to say, okay, we don't know this. Here's how we can figure it out. So often now I will turn it back to them. If I don't know it, I'll say, well, that's a great thing for you to research. Mm -hmm. And you can tell me because I'm not going to have all the numbers. Sometimes they'll say something like how many people died at such and such battle. That's what Google's I don't for. That's right. That's right. I, don't, I have no idea. No idea. You can look that up. So I know the Frasier, towards the end of October, is going to have an event called The Evening with Edgar Allan Poe. And so can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was born years ago. This is our 10th year. It's important to note because that's, that's a big deal to me. Uh, yeah. It was born 10 years ago as kind of a substitute for a program that I had been running. I had been running something called Living History, in which I brought individuals in who their job, they specialized in one particular historic figure. So, for instance, a guy uh, who plays Thomas Jefferson, and he knows everything about Thomas Jefferson, which is great. They're expensive mm -hmm. because you got to fly them in from Virginia or wherever they are, and then you, they, you, know, you have to pay them as professionals are paid. And it became... I could even say fiscally irresponsible to continue doing that. We couldn't recoup the expense. Mm -hmm. So at some point I realized that this living history program is probably not going to be continuing much longer. We just you know, look at the books and go, wow, we're not making anything. And I thought, well, we have a stable of actors downstairs. We've got a bunch of people. I think I know some people who'd be willing to try this. And Poe is well-known I mean, he's one of the American authors. So why don't we give it a shot? And I had read, we've all read some of it, Poe, mm -hmm. I imagine. And the first year, I really wanted to try Telltale Heart, which I think went over really well. It was consuming, but because the show went as well as it did, and the people who were, at the time, in a position uh, running the museum, they really enjoyed it, we got to do a second year. And the second year, we mostly sold out. The third year, we sold out. The fourth year, we sold out. So it's kind of a thing now, which is good. Yeah, but it was born partly out of necessity <laughs> because I did not want to let go of programming something for, for the public. And that was the best thing. I thought, we've got the, the talent mm -hmm. in, in the building. So. What inspired you to do Poe? Are you a personal fan of his work? Not exactly, no. Um, I think it was more because Poe is so well-known. Every time you think of American authors, his name kind of enters the mix. I'm sure you're aware of this. I don't know if your listeners are aware of this, but he has been credited with inventing detective fiction and maybe even science fiction. I mean, it's a really big deal. He did a good job putting his finger on the pulse, knowing what the society wanted to read. 
which is why he's all over the place. If you look at his his canon, I mean, there's all sorts of things that he's doing. He's trying to do comedy. He's trying to do journalism. He's trying to do real crime. He's, so he's got love poems as much as he's got drama and, and tragedy. So if someone comes to the evening with Poe, what all are they going to find? What all do you do in imagine, the production? It, imagine, if you will, like a Victorian parlor evening where sometimes they would have a, someone would just read a poem or they would read a story. We are not reading. I should be clear about that. These are staged and adapted for the stage. But the idea that you'll see a piece from Poe and then it will you'll have like a palate cleanser. Mick Sullivan heads up the musical group and they typically play music that is Appalachian based. They do deviate from that course, but it's really great, partly because Poe loved the whole area of Appalachia. We've, he's written about it. But it's a really great palate cleanser because Poe writes some stuff that you kind of need to take a breath. Yeah. So we don't go one piece into the next. You may hear the raven, and then there'll be some music in between, and then we'll do another poem or an, a short story. This year we're doing Telltale Heart again. So if you've not read it, my opinion, it's one of his finest prose works. It's just so well con constructed from beginning to end. Yeah, you'll see all sorts of stuff. We have. So you do his short stories. You do some of his poetry. Yeah, we're even adapting a, a novel. We'll see how it goes. It's. <laughs> but, I think we're going to try and clock it in at under 25 minutes to do a novel, or half of a novel, actually. Wow. If you're not familiar with it, it's the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. Mm -hmm. Poe seemed to have been fascinated with the South Pole and sailing journeys to investigate the South Pole. There was apparently a map at some point that was created that showed that the Earth at the poles had a hole in it. And if you traveled to it, then you could travel into this warm, temperate zone mm. that existed only if you could get there. And, and I, I think this was kind of, a, this is the zeitgeist. This is what people were thinking. And so Poe wrote stories about it. And Pym is partly about that. There's more to it. But it's, it's a fascinating journey to try and make that, condense that into 25 minutes or so. So did you do the adaptation i mean did, yeah. did so you all re essentially went to the original and then adapted it into something that you're going to use for the i should say are adapting actually <laughs> uh, yeah the thing is we have i have two very very capable colleagues eric france kelly moore and the three of us do all the pieces but they're very creative and we all are complementary in different ways so there's one person who perhaps is a little more pragmatic or at times has the pragmatism that we need, I should say. I'm always off in idea land. <laughs> what about what about this? And I need people to say, no, that doesn't work. There's only three of us or whatever. So I, I kind of throw a lot of ideas out and a lot of them get shot down, but that's good. You know, we have kind of a check and balance system. But I say that some of what we do in the creation is look at the text and decide what to keep and what not to keep, and then how to spin it a little bit. So we did a show, uh, we've done it twice now, called Loss of Breath. Loss of Breath is about a man who loses his breath. It's a comedy, a dark comedy. This is a Poe work. Is this oh, a Poe yeah. work? Oh, yeah. Okay. And nobody's ever read it. Okay. <laughs> but as soon as I did, I said, guys, I think we should do this show. And they said, I don't know. When you look at it, it's a man who loses his breath. It is taken from him, oh. which means he can't speak. 
He can't actually breathe, but he's still alive, and so he spends the whole time searching for his breath, which is kind of interesting. That's cool. But there's a lot of words. <laughs> and we worked, for we tried. Who doesn't have yeah, breath. Exactly. <laughs> so we tried as hard as we could to fit those words into it, and in the end, we realized no, we will do it like a silent film. Because he can't speak, why should we even narrate? So everything was done like a vaudeville silent film. We had music going live. And the key was we we had the idea to put these cue cards on an easel, kind of like when you see a magician on stage way back in the day. They have this, you know, the great Mandini or whatever. So we had that, and those cue cards were the titles of each of the chapters. And so we as characters, unbeknown, you know, the audience, I guess, it looks to them like it's entirely haphazard and, and, you know, but we go over there, we flip to the next chapter, and we say, oh, great, I escape. And so so the audience gets to know what each of these chapters are as we do. Yeah, and so that was perhaps one of my favorites, but the adaptation meant that we got rid of all the words. There was a levitation. Eric pulled my guts out. It was fantastic. Yeah, you don't. Are you, you never doing know. that one this year? No, no. Oh, you never man. know. Oh, there's guts in this one. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you never know what you're going to get, though. We have, like I said, we add one at least new piece every year. So you will probably never see the same show twice. We mix them up a little bit. There's a list somewhere that has all of the pieces we've done. And happily, when I look back, some things are done more than once. But often... There's one piece in there that people have not read, Hmm. which I think is important. We do Raven and the Bells every year because those are well-known, quick, you know, seven minutes in, we're done with the Raven. Everybody loves it. Everybody knows it. It was a sensation when he wrote it. So we kind of have to do that. But beyond that, we like to add a new piece every year. And so this year, it is the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, his only novel. Would you have condensed to 25 minutes? I hope so. <laughs> we are condensing presently. So, we are a month out. We have some time. <laughs> how many actors do you have in the production? There are only three of us. There's, okay. Yeah, there are only three of us, and we all wear multiple hats. So any theatrical production has a technical director, a lighting designer, costumer. There's a director. We don't really have a director per se. I guess that would be me and that in the end, the final decisions kind of come down to me. But I don't really make many of those because the two people I work with are so capable that they end up being an agreement. It's not like, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. But as far as lighting design, that's what I do. As far as set design, I do that. With input, of course, from Eric and Kelly. In fact, Eric and Kelly often are very vital in deciding what that looks like and how we build it. So I don't want to discount anything they're doing because we, the three of us do everything. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to wear that many hats? Or is it It's just all part of one creative endeavor and you feel like if you weren't wearing all those hats, then it wouldn't really be yours, so to speak? No, that makes perfect sense, actually. <laughs> I used to be part of a theater company called Le Petamain Theater Ensemble here in town. We existed for about 10 years with some fantastically talented and really intelligent and creative people. And we were in the habit of, we built most all of our shows. But in doing that, firstly, we didn't have a budget. So we had to be inventive as to how we built the sets and the costumes and whatnot. And so for the 10 years before I did this, 
I kind of started to enjoy that process, having a hand in everything. It's a little easier when you don't have to do all of that. Mm -hmm. Scheduling is a problem at times. Now, in this building, we have other jobs. It's just not all I do. So as full-time, I, I do interpretations and I teach school groups and whatnot. And also, our schedules don't overlap. We won't all work the same days. Oh, wow. We have different days off because someone always has to be here to perform. So, for instance, Kelly and, and Eric work on Sunday. I don't work on Sunday. We have to offset so that there's always someone here. What that means is we don't get a lot of rehearsal time. We have to start rehearsals really early in the year. Well, some shows you start, you know, eight weeks, six weeks, whatever, before you do a show. We have to start months in advance, hmm. months, because we only get maybe two days in the week. And even then, not a whole lot of time. So, When do you say you all started in earnest for this year? I would say probably two months ago. Okay. But again, time is sometimes difficult to come by. So we end up always, always, always just working hard the last month. So we're in that now. Mm -hmm. We open our matinee nah, this week. And the matinee is a slightly different show. It's like Poe Light. <laughs> There's no music, or at least no live music. We do fewer pieces, and the intent is to give students, it's all for students, matinees, to give those students a taste of Edgar Allan Poe and then time to talk back with us, which is really great. I think that is as important sometimes as them actually seeing the work. What has been some of their favorites during those matinees? That they really tend to like to? The Raven, partly because Kelly, if you've seen the show before, you know how we do The Raven. There are two people involved, not one. And so they're fascinated by what Kelly does during that, without giving much away. They're, mm -hmm. they're fascinated by what she does. They like the stories that have gore sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I did the black cat once, which if you're familiar with it, he takes a penknife at one point and carves the cat's eye out. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Sorry, cat lovers. <laughs> no, poor but, Carrie. <laughs> yeah. They... They were grossed out, but woo, they really, <laughs> they really enjoyed digged it. it though. You know, they were most scared though. We did a show called Mask of the Red Death, in mm. which um, one of our one of the characters is deaf, and so we had death enter the room in a rather creepy way. And I'm fairly certain at least one child screamed, <laughs> just screamed out loud, which was great. <laughs> what we want exactly. Do you have to do, or just because you want to, research on Poe, his life? Did you have to do that at some point just to get a sense of who he was and his influence so that you could talk about him with, with students? Yeah, that's a great question. Early on, I did more research. Some of that's already left my head. Mm. What we end up talking about often with students is less Poe's life and more why he chose what he chose and why he wrote it the way he wrote it. So often we'll use the bells as our entry into the question and answer period, partly because it's, it's a beautiful metaphor for life. Mm -hmm. And it introduces the idea of metaphor. So kids who aren't used to poems, that's the key to all poetry, really. So it's nice to say, what are these things? These are the tinkling spring kind of, you know, early bells. And then there's the mellow wedding bells, the golden. And then there's these alarm bells and things get worse. And, it, and you can say, look, it's the curve of life. It's the beginning to the end. And it's nice to see them go, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, he did it for a reason. It's Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Often we do more about how he presents his work 
it's important to know who he was, but you kind of get a sense of that a little bit through his work. That's kind of a trap, though. I mean, you can never know a person entirely by just the things they write, because we all have dark sides and light sides and whatnot. If the dark side went po- well. I, I, It's hard to imagine Poe's light side, but I'm sure there was He one. did try comedy. <laughs> I'm not saying it was great, but he did try comedy. There. <laughs> So you've been doing this for 10 years. I'm sure you have learned a lot. Are there some things that, that you tried that didn't work? Always. Or things that <laughs> Always. You, that if you, you had watched added? the rehearsal process for that show that I mentioned, Loss of Breath, what we ended up with was nothing at all like what we started with. Nothing. But what's interesting to me is the, the process. I kind of trust the people I've, you know, I've been doing it for so long with them. The process needed the failure to get to that end. So we tried a bunch of stuff. I think at one point I was pretending to be like a dresser and my arms would be the drawer. <laughs> I thought, no, this would be, it's terrible. We looked at it and it was, it was awful. We could make this work. Yes, we tried and tried and then it was awful. And so we had to do that though and sit, oh my gosh, I can't tell you how many rehearsals we've had in the past 10 years where we've sat and looked at each other exasperated. And just said, this is not working. But that's part of the creative process. I say that now. I'm in the middle of the exasperation right now. So <laughs> we, we will get there, other side. I thoroughly believe it. So you mentioned the, that you have the programs during the day for students, the matinees. Are the evening performances, are those appropriate for children? Or is there a certain age level that you recommend the evening performances for? Well, to that I would say... We have had kids who are 10 and 11 come and enjoy the show mm-hmm. and not be scarred by it. But bear in mind that the pieces we're doing, Telltale Heart, deals with a murder and a dismemberment. And it's not shown. That's the thing. We don't. When we stage this, Telltale Heart is about a man's psychosis. It's about the inside of his mind. So we're not going to show you him dismembering somebody. That, that's gratuitous. That You don't need that. And the same with Pim. There's some pretty awful things that happen in the story, which we'll talk about, but won't show. I would bet you that kids have already been around things that are worse. I mean, there's video games. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you, <laughs> most video games will show far more gore than we would show. Mm-hmm. But again, the, the themes are heavy, mm-hmm. and it's nothing like watching a man melt down about <laughs> ripping, you know, tearing some guy to pieces. And is there one of the pieces that you're doing this year that you think is the most frightening or creepy? I guess I would say Telltale Heart. And I maybe I only say that because that's the one I first one I did. Mm-hmm. Just to hear about a man who was either driven or maybe he has no sense of moral or has no ethic. I don't you know, he, this man makes a decision to kill someone for the color of his eye almost. Mm-hmm. Obviously that's symbolic of other things, but that's the linchpin. That's the little catalyst and all of a sudden this series of it's beautiful. I don't know if you've read it. It's a beautiful piece, I think. Mm-hmm. It talks so much about the senses, and he describes it so well. At one point he says, it's like the little ticking of a clock, a little watch. I could hear it, and it gets bigger and bigger, and you can almost kind of imagine it. So I, I think it's creepy because we know where it's going. Mm-hmm. That old man's going to die, Yeah. and not well. I do want to add, you you had asked earlier, was I always a fan of Poe and what do I find most interesting? I want to say this. 
I don't know if, what it'll sound like on a podcast about Poe, but I don't know that he was always the best author. Mm. There are times when I read some of his pieces and I think, I, I don't know if I could put that on stage. And one of the things I will say I have found in doing the multi-person pieces, so his stories with multiple people, I think he was really, really good when he deals with one person's psychoses or one person's first-person narrative. But when he adds multiple characters, sometimes I feel like they're ancillary. They are not, you know, they're not as quite as fleshed out. It seems like so. he tried lots of different things. That doesn't mean he succeeded mm. oh, at yeah. everything. Yeah, it's important to note this. I mean, yeah. you could put him on a pedestal all you want, but just like everybody, he has some things that are not that good. Well, when we talked with um, Dr. John Blanford a couple weeks ago, he was saying that he had written a play about an incident here in Kentucky, and he said it was pretty awful. Oh, it's terrible. It's <laughs> that terrible. play was pretty awful. He didn't finish it, and I think I know why. No, it yeah. was, I started reading it, and it's, it's not good. Uh-huh. It really isn't. But he tried it. That's the right. thing. He's, you know. That's he's, actually a good lesson for people. Right. I think, you know? Well, like, not every hit is a home run. Right. And you can still be remembered many, Centuries many years. Centuries later. See, that's brilliant. Not every hit is a home run. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. yeah. So there's like an artistic component to these evenings with Poe. So can you tell us a little bit about it? It has to do with schools and some art. Yeah. I can't remember if we did the very first year or not. We certainly did it from the second year on. Uh, We've had artwork for almost every single time we've done this particular show. The idea early on was the artists are are all student artists, high school students. And I felt like it was important to get them involved in something that perhaps they would very much enjoy but also something that would allow their pieces to be seen in public in a museum in a place where you don't you know always see their work so early on we said to a few schools but we we sent information to these schools and said would you would you want to do poe related artwork and there was a resounding response the first year i think we might have had 10 or 11 pieces and then we went to 30 and then there were 60 and so yeah um we probably haven't had much more than i don't know what we had this year but low hundred often the pieces are macabre as you would expect we seem to get a lot of ravens as you would expect (laughs) i mean you know when you think of poe that's it, it i get it we are also doing something interesting this year the photo biennial which i don't know enough about to really give you the background of but we are taking part in that and part of that is through western middle school they they did a photography class i guess a week-long photography class where they took pictures that were poe related so that is going to be up at the same time and where are these going to be displayed is it in the room where the performance is going to take place yeah what's really cool the past few years we've had an exhibit of some items with poe but this year we contacted uh, hal poe who is a relative of Edgar Allan Poe. Not a descendant, naturally, but I I don't know, say fourth cousin or something. Mm -hmm. But he has collected more items of Poe than I can even imagine. He has sent us a a large number of items, and many of them are pop culture items. Mm. So there are comic books, there are posters of movies, and all sorts of things that kind of bring him to the present. Just a, a reminder to people that he has lived in people's minds for years, even when he was alive, of course, but particularly after. So we have that, and we have the artwork, and we have the photography all in an exhibit directly next to the theater. Oh, wow. So when you come in, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a big presentation. It's a, whole, it's a whole deal. 
Okay, and I have a Poe memory related to when I was in high school. So you do not. I do. So I think I was a junior, and we had, her name was Sister Mary Austin, and she <laughs> read us the bells. And all I remember is she read it so fast, and she said, the bells, 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 bells. And, like, whenever somebody <laughs> mentions that poem, that's all I hear. I hear Sister Mary Austin doing that. You need to come yeah. see ours. <laughs> Because it is not that. It is not that at all. Well, I have a related memory. My husband and I lived in Charlottesville for seven years, where the University of Virginia is, and that is where he went to college for a few years. And the dorms at that time, the rooms that they had were on either side of the rotunda, but one of those was Edgar Allan Poe's original room, and you can kind of tour it and everything. They don't, they let you stay there? Or just tour I, it. I can't remember if they keep it as a shrine, shrine, or if you can actually that you could be assigned that room. Hmm. But can you imagine? Cool. I know <laughs> that would be cool, that would be cool right? <laughs> yeah. What are the dates of the show? When does it start? We open October twenty fourth, I believe, and it goes through November sixth. It's not every day though. You just have to check the website. But the twenty fourth is okay. our opening day. We close on the sixth. There are ten performances scattered through those days. <laughs> so most of them are in the evenings, though. The only matinees all of them are in the evening. Are for yes. the school matinees, and then all of our performances are in the evening. We have one on Halloween for the first time in some time, and that's a later performance. That's at 8 o'clock, because we figure people want to go, you know, if you've got little ones, maybe watch them for the first hour before the sun goes down and then come. <laughs> and then go have parent fun on I, Halloween. Yeah. Well, on that note, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. Here at the Fraser with Tony Dingman, and we're going to talk about what we're reading. So, Carrie, what's the last thing that you have finished? <laughs> so, I am currently reading this. It is called Brazen Rebel Ladies Who Rock the World by Penelope Bajou, B A G I E U. But it is a graphic novel. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Uh, so you deep dive in your way, I, I deep dive in it's my okay. way. So I picked this up. I had reserved some books from the library for my son, and I happened to go over to the graphic novel section, and this was on the shelf, and I thought, well, even if he doesn't want to read it, it sounds like something I would like to read. So in this book, what I like about it is there are little sections for all these different women who have basically been rock stars. I mean, like, they didn't... So it's sort of a women in history? Yes, yes. And they kind of did their own thing. Are they women that are well-known, or they're sort of more obscure? Some of them are well-known. So Josephine Baker is in here. Um, let's see, who else? Nellie Bly, Betty Davis, Temple Grandin, Hedy Lamar, Peggy Guggenheim, Mae Jameson. Um, but then there's also women that I have never heard of. So there is, let's see, Katia Kraft, a volcanologist. Never heard of her. Frances Glesner Lee, a crime miniaturist. I don't even know what that is. I haven't gotten to that chapter yet. So then each chapter is about one of these women, and is the, the pictures that go with it, is it a little summary of their yeah, life? Yeah, it tells their story and tells, you know, what they did that was significant 
in their time. So it, it's sort of like a girl power book, you know, how they broke whatever boundaries were placed on them because of their gender. For example, the first one in this book is Clementine DeLay, and she was a bearded lady. So she had this condition where she would grow a beard, and she ended up uh, marrying somebody who had no issue with that, and she opened a tavern, and uh, she called it Bearded Ladies Cafe. And so she made money and, and adopted a child and went on to find success by accepting herself the way she was. So it's been very inspiring for me, maybe too inspiring given some of the things I've been getting myself into lately, but it's, it's sort of a nice way to get some history that's interesting and you don't really feel like you're getting history. So I like that. And even my son took it to school and was reading it. So I'm like, winning. So that's what I've been reading. Tony Dingman, what have you been reading? Uh, well, I will say that uh, something I read in the past month was Plain Song by Kent Harreff, which is a kind of a fascinating story about a little fictional town called Holt in Colorado. It doesn't exist, but I'm sure it's based on something. Uh, I think Harreff lived in that area at some point. But it is very simply told about, I guess there's a few different storylines kind of interwoven, but it's about the people and how they interact. And, and love wins out in the end, which is really nice. It's, um, there's a young 17-year-old pregnant girl who's kind of ostracized because, you know, her situation. And she's taken in by two older kind of curmudgeons who have never had wives and they have a little farm and they do things the way they do things and she kind of upends their life. But it's a really lovely piece, but I can't imagine any, I feel like the the level of vocabulary is probably not much more than, you know, eighth grade or something. It's not like there's a lot of really ten-cent words in there. It's just really nicely crafted. I read that with a mind to how might it be adapted on stage because I'm working for towards my MFA and in playwriting so I want to know figure out how I can do that so like when you read something is it kind of in your head like ooh, how could I adapt this that happens often yeah <laughs> when I well because I've been doing you know Poe and whatnot every time I read a story there's part of me that thinks now if that was on stage could I do this or could I do that so I read one of Kent Harriff's books I think it was last year called Our Souls at Night, and I love that book. But it's about two older people who are both widowed or, or a widower, and they decide at first to get together as sort of a matter of convenience. They're both sort of lonely. And their respective families just think it's not right and really give them a hard time and almost shun them because they just they eventually do fall in love, but they just kind of want to be together. But their children think, well, you're too old for that. Sort of an ageism thing. And also, I guess, maybe wanting their parents to be the way they remembered them when they were younger. But anyway, it was really a lovely book. It's a kind of a quiet book, it's like what you're saying, but it's, it's lovely. He seems to write very simply in dialogue as well. He doesn't have big, long monologues and inner mm -hmm. monologues about what people are thinking. He kind of shows you mm -hmm. what, mm -hmm. and, and you get to make draw your own conclusions, which I like. Cool. It's very Hemingway. Yes, very cool. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have to add these to my list now. 
Okay, Amy, what have you been reading? I just finished a novella by Henry James called The Turn of the Screw. Most people, I think, probably know him because you probably had to read him in high school for a portrait of a lady uh, or maybe in college. This one is actually a gothic horror novella. Uh, Are you jumping into October early? I am. Uh, He wrote it in 1898. I have a whole book that I got from the library that's like maybe five or six short stories or novellas that he wrote that are, you know, have a little bit of a creepy element to them. I wanted to read this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I watched the first season of Haunting of Hill House, which was based on the book by Shirley Jackson. I really enjoyed that. Where they're doing a second season, the second season is going to be based on this book, The Turn of the Screw, except for that I think they're going to call it The Haunting of Bly House, and The House of Bly is the setting of this book. The other reason I wanted to read it is because an author that I have enjoyed who writes thrillers, her name's Ruth Ware, she recently came out with a book called The Turn of the Key, and it is supposed to be inspired by this book. So anyway, I wanted to read this book first before I saw that TV series or read this next book. The storyline is that a young governess, she's sent to a country estate to take care of two young children who are the wards of a wealthy uncle. And these children, their their parents died. He doesn't really want to have anything to do with their upbringing. So he sends them out to his country estate. He hires this governess to take care of them. Soon after she arrives, she thinks that there's a malignant evil spirits there that are after the children. Those ghosts are two former employees of the estate. One is the former governess. So she thinks that these ghosts are after the children. The ending is a surprise, as as a lot of horror books are. And in fact, the ending is a, to me was a little cryptic and I had to go back and read it a couple times and then kind of look online to see like what did other people think that they thought the what the ending was. I think um, that's sort of what you have to do with Henry James in general. Perhaps that time. that is true. What I found interesting is that this is, to me, it was an example of an unreliable narrator because you're not sure if the ghosts are really there or whether the governess is imagining that the ghosts are there. And actually, literary critics are, are split in half about which they think. This is short. It's a novella. It doesn't take a long time to read. The language is a little dense and flowery, and it's filled with high emotion. You feel like the governess is on the verge of hysteria, or at least she's a person who's very excitable the whole time. Because now I'm reading Daisy Miller, which is another short story by him. But it's not really a horror or a creepy story. But his his language, it's, it's much more straightforward uh, and simple. So, you know, I, I do believe he was writing that other in a way to make her seem like she was was hysterical. So anyway, I've read it. And now I'm anxious to get on to The Haunting of Hill House and to the book by Ruth Ware that I really want to dig into. When we come back, we are going to be asking Tony Dignan his top five. We are back at the Fraser History Museum with Tony Dingman, and we are going to be asking him his top five. You are a cyclist. Where is your top place to cycle? I have lots of different places, but right now I go every Sunday with my family. We go and ride in Parklands. They've got a really lovely section of the Louisville Loop, and we've done three different parks on different days. Some days my son gets up and says, oh, we have to go again. And I say, yes, we do. 
We've done the Beckley Station, mm-hmm. I think it's called, and then Turkey Run, and most recently we did Pope Lick. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pope Lick is just kind of a flat. Right. I mean, anybody can ride that, which yeah. is great. Anybody can ride any of them, but that one is the least difficult. So that's locally where I will ride sometimes. I love Cherokee Park because I love hills. So there will be days when I just get on my bike early in the morning and I just go and I do do the loop and I hit the hills as hard as I can and then straight back. I'm hoping, we'll see how it goes, but I'm hoping to ride across the state in the next year. So one big long trip, which will mean that I'll have to bring the camping gear and everything. Um, and I got some panniers on my bike and whatnot. So for those who don't know, panniers are the bags that go on the back or the front, on the back wheel, front wheel. And then you just load it up with stuff, food, of course, that you need, and any repair items that you need. Very little clothing. I mean, you know, you're, you're going to be camping. You don't need to change clothes all the time. Right. Would you be going solo or would you be doing it with a car? Well, this, the, the route that I would like to do actually follows the Trans-America Trail which is one that has been in existence since, the, I think, the mid-'70s. There's a Adventure Cycling. There's a company that has been doing this that kind of mapped out a trail that was, they thought, the better roads for cyclists. I think it was for the Bicentennial, wow. so 1976. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they mapped out this trail. It goes all the way from uh, somewhere in Oregon, right there on the, right there on the coast, all the way to, to the East Coast. So mm-hmm. you dip your rear tire. If you're going east, you dip your rear tire in the Pacific and then you dip your front tire in, which I would love to do. I would love to do it. It's my goal at some point in my life when my son perhaps is old enough to do it with me. But that goes right through Kentucky, and this particular route, I don't know if you know this, but Kentucky is one of the few states that has a fully signed, as in street sign, road signs, um, U.S. bike route. Bike route 76. No. Starts from, I forget the name of it, but there's a park right across the river in Illinois, Cave and Rock, I think is what it's called. And then you take a ferry across, and then you ride all the way through to... There's a little town on the eastern edge of Kentucky, right across the Appalachians. So I would be following that route. I say that because, ideally, for my mother's peace of mind, it would be nice to have someone to ride with. And so I will probably make a call out on the on the boards to the people who are doing the the Transamerica trail cuz they do there's you know thousands of people every year that do it and see if maybe I can meet up with them and ride with them but if I can't find anyone I kind of intend to do it sorry mother <laughs> I kind of intend to do it on my own then so did this love of cycling did you ride your bike as a kid and just love it love it love it I did actually I have a memory if when I was little my dad used to work at Humana here in town. We've lived here for forever. And sometimes we would go on bike rides, but often he would take the bus home. And so we would get on our bikes and ride up to meet him at the bus. And then there were days when we would just all get on. And this is this is the days of the old banana seats and the big tall handlebars. You know, I had on. one of those. There you go. Yep, yep. <laughs> And we would race those down a road. I remember specifically racing as fast as you could and then standing up in the pedals and get the wind go. And so ever since then, I've liked being on the bicycle. He actually helped me build my first bike, too. I tell you, props to my dad. He was the kind of guy who would say, we're going to make something. We're not going to just buy something. We're gonna. So we, we built, each one of us, I think, got to build our own bike. Oh yeah, which is great. Now, this is not like today's, you know, right. high fully. There was just one gear. 
and, you know, a coaster break. But that's where it started. Well, this, the next question I'm going to ask you relates to that a little bit in that you also like to camp. And so do you have a top go-to place for camping? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's one place that I've been a, f- a couple times that I really enjoy. And I found it because it is listed as a dark sky park one of the few it's a silver tier dark sky park and if you've never heard of this there is dark sky international i think it's called online they have i guess it's a rating system i don't know you i think people would send them what they're doing to keep it dark so for instance lights that are aimed at the ground or things that are much more directional so that the night sky is not polluted with light and then I guess this nonprofit Dark Sky International will say, oh, you've done this, this, and this. You're awarded such and such status. But what it does for people like us is it tells us where the dark places are to go, right? So I went because I wanted to see the Milky Way because you can't see it here. There's no way looking up in Louisville you're ever going to see the Milky Way. And it is Pickett State Park, which is in Jamestown, Tennessee. Directly across the border. It's right next to Big South Fork. Okay. So I've been there a couple times, and I'd like to say that I'm backcountry camping and whatnot, but that is not the case. It takes all day to get there, so they have spaces. They have spots, so you pull up, you you know. Most recently, I've started hammock camping, which is fantastic. If you ever feel that, like, rock in your back or whatnot when you're in a tent, Uh gone. Because you just do this little gentle sway to the breeze. All you need is two trees. Doesn't matter what the ground is, level or not, who cares? You got two trees, you put up a hammock, you're good. My daughter went to camp many years in a row, and they all had enos. I don't know if that's yep. the kind you use, but no. then she would take an eno. It's a type of hammock that you can, it's very portable, and you can just take it anywhere. So they'd go to all kinds of different parks and things and just take this eno. They'd all take their enos, and sometimes they would stack them, like, one on top of one. Another, That's fascinating. Like, how did you tree? get up? I, I don't really know. Teenagers. <laughs> Teenagers. I'm not sure how they do it. I mean, I don't think they, like, there's four high, but, I mean, there might be one kind of low yeah, and then one I, a little bit higher. And then you just hang out and swing in those hammocks. That's the best. That's yeah. the best. And I think some good thinking happens in hammocks. Closer to home, if you're looking for the closest place to find the camp, I would say Jefferson Memorial. Mm-hmm. The only drawback to Jefferson Memorial is that it's still in the path of planes and whatnot mm-hmm. for the airport. But it's beautiful. There are paths that go directly behind almost every one of these campsites. So you can just hop on one of the trails. And it's close. And so you can, 20 minutes, and you can camp, which is great. You're pursuing your MFA in playwriting. So what's the top thing you've learned or enjoyed? (laughs) I know that's kind of a tricky question sometimes when you're pursuing a graduate degree. But pursuing your MFA. Okay, first thing... (laughs) <laughs> the the program I'm I'm enrolled in is through Spalding University, which is a really great program in that they pair you with a mentor, a professional in the business from somewhere else. And so you do most of the work. It's independent study. There's a, there's a really intensive 10-day residency where we hash out a bunch of things, and then you have six months or so of independent study. And I said early on to him, listen, don't hold back. Tell me whatever you think. I'm not. I, 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 you don't need to coddle me. I, whatever you think about this work, and he consistently says the same thing, and that is, stop being so subtle. 
Because I have a tendency to think, oh, the audience will get this, but I'm going to reveal it really slowly. <laughs> I'm going to trickle it in, and then all of a sudden they'll be like, wow. And he says, no, no one gets it. <laughs> Not at all. Whatever you did, don't do it. So frequently he says to me, stop doing that, which has been a big learning experience for me because I think I've done that most of my life with everything. Because I feel like, oh, it's going to be great when they figure this out. And he says, no one's going to figure this out. You've made it too difficult. So that's the biggest learning experience for me. I would say also I still am trying to figure out how to make time. You've got, got a, a lot of things. I going got a full time job, and and of course the MFA program, and family, and Poe right now. Um, so my last packet is actually due next Wednesday. And if you're out there listening, Charlie, my mentor, <laughs> um, I'm also doing a podcast. Here, so <laughs> if you could maybe I could do a little late. Uh, yeah. So it it's it's scheduling time has been a, a major. So you said that you didn't start out liking history, but you've been working here at the Fraser for many years now. What's your top historic period that you most like to discuss with the visitors or the school children who come into the Fraser, and why is it your top? I would say the American Civil War. I mean, the vestiges still exist. We see it every day. We see it in the inequalities in our own city. And so I think that wound that is not healed needs to be continually looked at and investigated, particularly for young people. And I used to, when I would teach about the American Civil War and talk about the American Civil War, I used to be disappointed when I felt like, well, they're not putting as much emphasis as they say should on this. The students I'm in. I mean, like, wait a minute, this is important. People growing up now are feel like it's so removed. We're not having a, a war presently, and, and slavery does not technically exist in, the, in America, right? And so I get it now. I realize that it's a conversation that needs to happen. I think that I have mellowed in how I do it. I used to press it more and say, look, this is important. Mm-hmm. And now I just try and tell them stories that get them interested, even a little bit, even if there's any little interest. But I do feel like it applies to where we are today. You can't talk about anything happening in America without having some little, at least particularly when it deals with the races and whatnot, but, mm-hmm. um, or relationships between demographics, you can't no. do it without talking about the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. We're, we're still experiencing all of that. Um, and you, I, I imagine you still get that sense when you're in a southern state or in a northern city or, you know. So I, I think it, it applies. I will say this. I, I don't f- consider myself a pessimist, but when I... I've been studying history since I've been here. And the idea that we learn from history, and that's why we have history. We have history. We can learn from it. We can change. And, you know, I don't know that I see that happen. What I see history as more recently is it's like a graph of what it is human beings do, <laughs> that we don't get off the graph. If we, we, we may, in fact, stop this one terrible thing that happened before. It doesn't mean that another terrible thing isn't going to happen. I feel like humans are humans. We're fickle and we're strange, and there's people who are have made terrible choices or, you know. And will continue to do exactly. so. Exactly. But, and I don't think it's pessimistic to say this, I think that history, I look at it like a sine wave. Mm-hmm. There are these brilliant moments when humans show the best they can be. 
but they will always be offset by those terrible moments when humans show the worst they can be. That's just what we are. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where we stand now, but I don't know that we're going to ever stop it. I look at it as hopeful, though. I look at it as hopeful. (laughs) If you think about it, if you're in a trough, there's going to be another, you know, I I really feel like we'll come out of things. But we're going to have to live through them. We're going to have to. Well, know. and maybe maybe the, the thing to remember is if you're at a peak, enjoy that peak. Yeah. Because <laughs> why you got it. And sometimes you can't appreciate that peak until you've been until in the you, valley. Yeah. That's that's yeah. exactly it. Right. That, yeah. In fact, that leads me to my favorite book ever, which was Siddhartha. It kind of one of those books that kind of changes your life a little bit. My mother was studying it when I read it in college. She, she was doing a graduate school a little later in life. They were reading it and I was reading it without the benefit, or I guess, or maybe even the hindrance of a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I read it, and I took it to be one thing, and she took it to be another. It is a story about the, the Buddha, you know, the original Buddha and whatnot. But what I saw was it was a story about every man and what every man could be, just possibly. So making it one person meant that it was attainable for maybe one person. We're all, you know, but I saw it as a parable for every man. Mm-hmm. If you're not familiar, of course, with the whole process there, but he, he goes through life and he experiences all of the difficulties and all the struggles and eventually kind of realizes that that's part of what makes you who you are. You need your pain. But you need that speaking to your, yeah. your peak and your trough and whatnot. You yeah. kind of have to have those. Yeah. Okay, last question. All right. When you have a chance to catch a quick meal or drink downtown before or after the performance here at the Fraser, what is your top place to go? Well, I like close, so I can walk there. And so to the museum, I'll tell you where I'm going today. <laughs> where are you going? Taco Luchador. Oh, there, is there one with a walking Yes, Fifth and Market. Ooh. Oh, that's new. Is it new? Relatively new. Okay. Yeah, but they I have thought a, I knew where all the tacos they were. Have, <laughs> they have a fantastic uh, Baja fish taco. Yes, they do. And a veggie taco. The veggie hot taco has a, the fried plantains in there. The My case. favorite. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They oh, have the a gosh. fantastic chicken mole. If you like mole, there. Everything well, they do there, I'm sure, is fantastic. If if you can go by the fish taco. And if you can get past getting a taco, Mexican crunchy salad are fantastic. But that would mean that you probably wouldn't be getting a taco. So that's a downer. But that, <laughs> that salad is, is really good. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's where I'm going this evening, actually. Before okay. we have rehearsal, so I'm going to go grab some later. <laughs> I think we ought to end it because I'm getting really hungry. <laughs> well, Tony, thank you so much You're welcome. for talking with us about an evening with Poe, and we will have all the information about what we've talked about on our show notes. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.